Richard Liu and his wife Danette and their son Dylan are here with us. And with that, Richard, would you please come up forward? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Wow, I don't think I usually get clapped for. <laughs> um, it's good to be here. Uh, thanks, Pastor Bryce, for the invitation too. It's always a pleasure to bring the word. Um, I haven't met most of you, except for just like a couple of minutes right now, but um, I love uh, being part of the worship service to hear uh, just a couple of snippets already, just uh, that there's a story that we're talking about um, participating. It's, a, it's God's story. Uh, it's a story of redemption, uh, a story of resurrection. And uh, that, uh, especially as Easter is coming around the corner, that is so um, so central to who we are as people. But uh, more importantly, if you're a believer, then that's so such a part and parcel of who we are as believers. And um, as, uh, as I was listening to uh, the worship and just kind of engaging in that way, um, I was thinking about one of the elements of the story is, yes, it's redemption, but before we get to redemption, there is, the story's not always easy, right? It's not always uh, comfortable, even. And uh, uh, sometimes the story that God is writing uh, leads us into some pretty difficult places. Um, and it doesn't take much to hear that. Uh, we could turn on the news and we can hear things like earthquakes uh, that are happening in California. We are in earthquake country. Kind of, it's always in the back of my mind, I know. Uh, but, uh, you know, floods in America, like people uh, being displaced, um, just uh, so many things, and that's just within the domestic sphere. We start looking outward and there's uh, so much so much pain, so much uncertainty. Um, and these are, these are these big global events that are showing us that while this, this world and this life is not always easy. Uh, and the story that God is writing, it leads into some pretty dark valleys. Um, and that's on the big scale. Um, but even when you get down to a more personal level, um, even if we turn off the news, so to speak, and we just kind of are going through our own personal experiences, um, I'd be willing to bet that uh, there's a lot more difficulty uh, than, uh, than we care to admit. Um, sometimes it's stuff going on in our own families, um, and here is just so often this family that, that we've been talking to, death of loved ones, chronic illnesses, um, uh, broken relationships. Um, these things can go on and on. It could be us. Uh, it could be people that we care about. It could be uh, just uh, situations where we wish we can do more, and yet uh, there's a sense of, well, powerlessness. Like, what do we actually do? And as broken as my heart can be, uh, is there anything that I can do? Or even deeper, is there anything that God might do? And these are, these are hard questions. And uh, just kind of uh, thinking about these things and the context of God's story, um, one of the people in the Bible that uh, we see this most often and is talked about in a uh, person that I, I tend to go back to because this experience helps me to understand uh, how to process through and even to hold on to a hope uh, that God uh, does do things and he does meet us in these difficult circumstances. And this is, uh, you might have known this person in the Bible, Job, um, and so we're going to be looking at him today. Uh, but he's also going through a particular story, and we'll kind of zip through that. It's a long uh, book, but I just want to focus on a little, a few things at the end uh, that are, I think are helpful. But um, uh, Because one of the questions that comes up in Job is that in the middle of, of difficulty, and for Job's story, uh, incredible tragedy. 
there's a problem of, well, how is God actually in control in these things? And I know one of the most painful things for a believer, and also for a non-believer, but is when we're going through these difficult circumstances, and then we walk into a place like here, even, and we're seeing things like God is good, or God is beautiful, or that there is hope. I know I have done this, and I suspect if you've been in church for a while, you've probably done this too. We sing those things, and we hear those things, and yet in our hearts, it's like I feel like my lips are just kind of moving. And it doesn't really connect. And I know some of the hardest things is, how is God really working in the middle of pain? Well, let's look at Job's story a little bit. Um, and let me, uh, I'll just read a little bit uh, from Job chapter 42. But as we read the scripture, I, I would like to ask us to stand as we hear that. I'll just read a snippet here. And as we read this, um, the question I think is, how can we accept, how can we accept that God is sovereign, that is in charge of everything, when we suffer or when we see suffering around us. And as I read this uh, from Job, the end of Job, Job chapter 42, I'm just going to read a couple of verses and we'll read more of Job, but uh, just for now, um, hear the word of the Lord. Job chapter 42, verses 4 to 6. Uh, you said, Listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me is what Job says. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And I wish this was a kind of happier topic, but for us to fully understand who God is, I think we need to explore some of these dusts and ashes and see God who's sovereign in the middle of these things. Let me, let me pray for us as we dive into this. Our Lord, our, our Heavenly Father, and I don't know where each one of us is this morning, but sometimes we say those words or we sing songs that ring a little empty for us. Lord, I pray that if that's us, Lord, I pray that uh, you are speaking very directly to us through your word this morning. And not only that you're speaking, but that, like Job here, that we might hear and that we might see you today. But I pray that as we gather this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts are pleasing to you. I pray this in the name of Son Jesus. Amen. Thanks. Uh, if you're not uh, familiar with the book of Job, uh, you know, the book, let me just do a quick summary because uh, it, it's a pretty long book. It's like 42 ish chapters. Uh, the book can be summarized kind of like this. It's uh, written as a kind of a poetic literature uh, and 
uh, Bible people will call it uh, wisdom literature because then we see uh, glimpses of who God is and that's characterized as wisdom in the form of poetry. Uh, if you know the story, it's a pretty famous uh, story, especially chapters 1 and 2 of Job. It begins as a kind of a narrative that uh, unfolds. Uh, God is uh, in heaven and he's almost, it sounds kind of blasphemous for, see, for me to say this, but God is almost bragging that, hey, look, well, I have, look at my servant Job, he, he is a good and upright man. And of course, uh, you know the story, Satan, the enemy, uh, comes along here and uh, he says to God, well, of course, you know, this guy is upright and good because you have surrounded him with so many material blessings. He's comfortable, everything is good in his life. Why else would he be anything else except good and upright? And of course, God, uh, God uh, you know the story, God kind of calls his bluff and says, well, Satan, I think, uh, you can inflict whatever suffering, uh, really, that you want on Job. And as the story unfolds, uh, Satan does exactly that. Uh, almost all the comfortable things in Job's life are immediately stripped away. Uh, his material blessings, and as it gets further, even his family, and then even his own personal health, and all these horrible things uh, kind of happen. Um, that's the chapters one and two. Just fast forward chapters three. This is the bulk of the uh, the book now. Chapters three to thirty-seven. In the middle of this suffering uh, that God has now allowed to happen to Job, uh, Job has three friends who kind of come along to comfort him, which is a great blessing. Except these three well-intentioned friends, they are not so helpful. Um, and as friends sometimes can be, not always end up being a little more annoying than helpful, uh, kind of talking to him, trying to comfort him, but also in the back of their mind, uh, talking and saying something like, you know, obviously, Job, you've, you're being punished for some sort of sin, so just, just confess what you've done wrong and then ask for forgiveness. And uh, that goes on for 30 chapters. <laughs> you can kind of get why that's a little bit annoying. And Job, in the middle of this, is, he's talking, and of course he hears, and he's listening, and they're dialoguing, and there's, there's a lot of wisdom that's said, a lot of good, true things, and also lots of things that, hmm, I'm not so sure about. Um, and then, of course, uh, fast forward again, uh, we get to the, towards the end of the book, in chapter 38, uh, God shows up, kind of answers Job, um, answers some of these questions that have been kind of piling up in Job's mind as he's been going through this suffering, and uh, we're going to dive into some of those things in a little bit. Uh, more today, but uh, if you're trying to just take notes or whatever it is, I'm going to be hitting three big points here uh, when we talk about Job. I want to cover something like Job's sin and Job's uh, confession and then, then his repentance. So let's uh, go for the first part here. First uh, thing I want to look at here is Job's sin. We usually don't think of Job as a sinner because in the very first chapter, Job is called blameless and upright, right, in chapter 1. Um, but I just want to point out here that even when the Bible says someone is blameless and upright, it doesn't mean they are without sin. That is, uh, the phrase is also used in the Bible to describe people like Noah. You know, we know him as a you know, pretty good guy, right? Uh, and Abraham, also known as a pretty good guy, but also at the same time, when we hear that, and blameless and upright is kind of like Bible words for a good man. But it doesn't mean a perfect man. There's a difference. Um, so he's blameless, yes, but he's not perfect. And we can kind of see this as his story starts to unfold because as his well-intentioned friends come and are comforting him in this sorrow and in his pain, 
uh, we see some of these that start popping out of Job. Um, and in the middle of this, his suffering, Job starts to drift into some questions, and it's so understandable if we've ever suffered and been in some sort of pain, and even if we haven't, right? Questions that start to pop up in Job's mind are something like, hey, why? Right? Why God? Uh, and even more specifically, why me, God? And you know, when we say stuff like why God, it's usually not just a very innocent sort of why. You know, I have a, I have a four-year-old kid, you know, I get the why question all the time. And you know, sometimes you have a very innocent why, right? Like, why is the sky blue? Which I cannot answer, by the way, but it's a very innocent why, which is great, right? Um, but when we ask, especially as adults, and we ask God, why God? It's not so much of a very innocent why is the sky blue. There's an undertone. All right, let's, let's hear for this and how Job says it. And Job says this in uh, chapter 30, uh, verse 20. This is in the middle of a dialogue that he's having, and then this is when he's kind of now by himself. He says, now Job is speaking to God, Job chapter 30, verse 20. He says to God, I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. He says, I stand up, but you merely look at me. And you turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. Like, well, this is getting kind of strong language here. And then verse 24, he says, Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries out for help in his stress. Wow. And he says, Have I not wept for those in trouble? And has my soul not grieved for the poor? Yet, when I hoped for good, evil came. And when I looked for light, then came darkness. Wow. What is Job saying here? I mean, he's asking God why. But he says up like, surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries out for help. Obviously, he's a broken man. He's saying, in other words, he says, what good man would kick a, kick a dog when he's down? Right? And yet he's here saying to God, you're doing that exactly to me. I'm crying out for help. And then in verse 25, he says, almost self-justifyingly, he says, have I not been compassionate to those who are weak? Have I not wept for those in trouble, right? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? And the implication here, very subtly, Job is saying to God, why aren't you more like me? Even I was brokenhearted for the downcast. And you, you kick me when I'm down. Is it a sin to ask God why? Not always. But there's an attitude, I think, in the heart that kind of peeks out in these sort of moments, in this type of thinking. Because Job is saying something like, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Because it's surely not right. Surely no one, no good person does these things. And here, we start to get a glimpse of what Job's sin actually is. There's a bit of doubt that is creeping into his questions of why. It's kind of like the original sin that we see in the Garden of Eden. Uh, that there's a doubt that Satan is whispering into Adam and Eve's mind. While surely God is keeping something good from you, right? There's an element of doubt. And in Job's mind, too, he's like, oh, there's, in the middle of my pain and suffering, yeah, there is a doubt. 
doubt of, is God really as good as he says he is? And even more subtly in Job's mind, and God, are you as good as I am? Hmm. How does God answer? God shows up uh, kind of unexpectedly, uh, for Job at least, in chapter 38. He, uh, he shows up unexpectedly and unannounced. And uh, I love this incredible passage. It always comes back to me. Um, let me just read a little bit here. Because what happens is God shows up and he starts asking Job some questions. And as I read some of this, I just want you to just kind of imagine you being Job, kind of listening to God showing up. And it's this voice of the whirlwind is how Job describes it. So chapter 38, verse 1. And then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And he says to Job, brace yourself like a man. I will question you. And you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Or who stretched out a measuring line across it? Or what were its footings set on who laid its cornerstone while the, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it, when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and, and wrapped it in thick dark darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, and when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where the proud <coughs> waves halt. These are amazing things that God is trying to say. Like, let me just read a little bit more because I think it's worth hearing. Um, and just kind of listening how God is approaching Job here. Verse 22 just kind of goes on and on. It says, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for, for days of war and battle? And what is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are, are scattered over the earth? Who? cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a, and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no man lives, a desert where no one in it to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone? When the surface of the deep is frozen, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or, or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with floods of water? Do you, do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or, or gave understanding to the mind? 
who has the wisdom to count the clouds, who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and when the clods of earth stick together. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander for lack of food? I don't know about you, but reading this already makes me feel a little uncomfortable. (laughs) And imagine if you're on the receiving end. And you know, God continues like this. This is just chapter 38. 39 is very similar. A whole string of questions that is kind of mind-blowing. Chapter 39. Chapter 40. Chapter 41. Question after question that Job just cannot answer. And not only can he not answer, these questions, they are piercing the heart and the mind and these thoughts from God that are just too big, too expansive. Where do you even begin to say anything? These are questions that only God can discern and only he can begin to answer. And the first thing that I, and the second part that I want to point out here about Job's sin is that God's answer here in chapter 38 and on is he's revealing, God is revealing how God is so much greater than us. He is so much greater than us and that God's actions they are probably right even when they don't seem right to us. Because God's answer is basically astounding in its power and its majesty. It's a voice from the whirlwind. It makes me think of what uh, the theologian John Calvin ends up saying about knowing who God is. He says, all wisdom, at least all that is considered true and solid wisdom, it consists almost entirely of two parts. The first part is the knowledge of God and then the knowledge of ourselves. And he says, it's not easy to determine which precedes the other. And he kind of goes on to say, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation than to look at himself. For such is our innate pride as human beings. Because we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we're convinced by clear evidence of our own injustice, of our own vileness, our folly and impurity. And then he says, moreover, we are not convinced if we only look at ourselves and not upon the Lord. Since he is the only standard on which we must be measured. And in the middle of Job's suffering, basically, this is what's going on. And I think this is what suffering does, I know it does for me, is that Job had very subtly, and not intentionally, but he had forgotten that God is so much greater than he is. And God's answer is revealing again, Job, I am God.
beyond your understanding, really. Beyond any category that you have. And when God shows up, he shows how much more knowledge he has than even Job can even fathom. And this kind of leads to what Job responds and says, the second part of Job's confession. Job starts to recognize that he's misjudged God. And in turn, also then misjudged himself. Job chapter 40, verse 4, he says, in response to all these questions, he says, I am unworthy. How? How can I reply to you? I put a hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Job here, I think rightfully, right? Confessing his unworthiness. God is so mind-blowingly all-powerful and all-knowing. And then, of course, after Job says that in verse 40, God still continues to make the same point for two more chapters, asking these questions. And then Job Verse 40, uh, sorry, chapter 42, verse 2. He says, I know you, God, can do all things. And of course, Job cannot do all things. And he says, no plan of yours can be thwarted. And of course, for Job, every thwart, job, any plan of his can be thwarted. He says, now to that verse that we read earlier, when you asked, who is it that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. There's a quietness when Job hears and encounters God. A submission, a a peace, actually, that comes from knowing who God is, God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, and then therefore who we are before him. And so what is Job's confession about? He is saying that he misjudged God. And in the process of misjudging God, he also then misjudged himself. And as he does that, he's confessing that God's purposes and power, they will not fail. You know, notice here what Job does not confess. Now, Job is not confessing some sort of ethical failure that his friends were telling him to do in chapters 3 to 32 or so. Uh, you know, when they're saying something, surely, Job, you must have sinned. God is punishing you. And, you know, the middle of suffering still, you know, I hear some Christians kind of wondering that and even... Some, like Job's friends, even saying that to other people. And you know what I'd say is, you know, sometimes it might be true that God is kind of punishing us, but it might not be true either. What Job is not confessing, he is saying, he's not saying, I've sinned in some way, although he might have. He's confessing a more subtle heart attitude that kind of creeps in and had creeped in for him. That sort of why God why me, God? Because I don't deserve this. I'm so much better than that. And you, God, you should be so much better than that. At the heart of this is a subtle distrust that's going on. 
And that, I think, for most of us, it kind of creeps in in the middle of suffering. We start to distrust that God is actually good or that God is actually sovereign in the middle of our pain. And how do we know that that kind of happens for us? You know, sometimes for believers in the middle of hard times, we just stop praying. That's one way that we just don't want to deal with this God who is good or all-powerful. We don't even want to think about that. We might do that when the pastor comes by and we'll still pray with him, right? I mean, but in our private moments? Or when we do pray, we might repeat the same phrases over and over again because we don't really want to process through really the hard things that God might be showing us in the middle of our pain. I'll just say the phrases that, you know, I've been used to as a kid or that I hear people saying over and over in church. Oh, God, please be with me. And that's good. But if we just kind of stick on those phrases and not sink down deeper to where Job gets to as he encounters God, I think that tells us something. Maybe worth asking right now is even, what is the biggest sin that you've ever confessed? Was it some unrighteous deed, some sort of thing that we're always ashamed of? I mean, that's good and definitely worth confessing. But the things that we often forget to confess is that sort of subtle heart attitude that creeps into us. Like, God, maybe I don't think your way is the best way. And maybe I don't think you're actually as good as even I've said so. Because I'm not fully trusting and I'm asking in the back of mind or holding on to these whys and why me? Consider Job's confession. It's a subtle sin of the heart of misunderstanding God. I'm trusting that Job's version of what is good is actually better than God's version of what is good. Let me press on here to the third thing. We've seen Job's sin a little bit, uh, his confession. I just want to look at his repentance a little bit here. Chapter uh, 42, verses 4 to 6. Uh, one of the things we see here, um, Job is again saying something like, I know that you, God, can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. And then we get to verse 5 there. He says, My ears have heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. And then he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now Job's response here uh, is a statement of how he's experiencing God. You know, he's confessing and then he's starting to repent. Um, and in contrast to what all people, I think, in churches like to talk about when they're saying something like, oh, we want to experience God or uh, we want to encounter God. Um, I talk to a lot of believers who are wanting to see God in that way, and it's usually a very exciting experience, right? Like, oh, I'm going to be jumping up and down, which is, I think, one response, right? There's an exuberance. Uh, I'm, I come to church to get this inspiration from this encounter with God. But here when Job encounters God in all his power and overwhelming might and knowledge, Job's response is incredible quiet and humility. A awestruck silence. Because what else can I say before a God who is that mighty and 
that powerful. And interestingly how uh, Job talks about it, he says he has heard God, right? That's one verb. We've heard that voice, that voice in the storm, all those questions that still ring, right? From 38, I'm sure in his ears for the rest of his life. And then he says, and his eyes have seen. And now that's interesting. Because I think when he uses that word see, it's kind of a poetic kind of use of the word see. I don't think he's actually seeing God face to face. We know what happens when you know, Moses tries to see God, like you know, God has to turn his back because he knows that any human being looking upon God is going to be blasted off the face of the earth. When he says see, he means I have seen you, meaning in the power of your word so brightly and so powerfully, this experience of hearing your word is like encountering you face to face. And so what we see here is that as Job encounters God, this closer knowledge of God and experience with God, it brings him to fear God and then to trust God more. He's not jumping up and down singing a worship song. Well, that's a great thing. And I love that. But here, broken and as he does that he sees himself in new ways and I think he starts to change you know I talk to a lot of uh, people who are always you know yearning to change and I think that's that's a great thing um, but just a little thing to observe here if you've ever wanted to change you know, kind of consider that willpower or sort of finding a new way of doing things is not really the answer because consider here in Job's story that true change, it starts with spending more time learning about God and encountering Him, experiencing Him speaking in the power of His Word. And then when that starts to happen, we see ourselves in light of who He is. And it is unraveling. And it may be uncomfortable but it's also freeing. Because in the middle of our pain or in the middle of who we are, we're we're just always caving in upon ourselves. Thinking about my own stuff, thinking about my own sorrows, thinking about my own worries and my own anxieties. When God is saying, I see those things, but do not forget that I am sovereign and I am good. And so what is Job's repentance here? It is recognizing those things and turning back to God with trust. And the last point I want to make a point out here is that uh, you know, when God is teaching Job to trust, he's not basing it on answering his questions. But that's the most amazing thing about the book of Job. And we've got 30 plus chapters of questions that kind of kick around and by the end of it, you know, if I've ever read something that had so many questions, you would think that if God's going to show up and answer, then I want to hear an answer, right? I mean, come on, why is this in the Bible, right? I mean, but God's answer is, I think, very specifically and purposefully, it's not an answer to his questions. He's calling Job to trust, not based on how many specific reasons God can give for the actions that have happened. God is calling Job to trust based on who he is. 
In other words, God is teaching Job to trust him not on the whys, but on the who. And if you've ever had like a four-year-old who's asking all the why questions, you know that you start answering those questions, it is a rabbit trail. <laughs> why this? Oh, there's another why, right? Why this? There's another why. It's endless, right? Why should I, why should I go with potty now, right? Why should I do this? Like, it's just, and then in the end, if you're a parent, you're, what do you say? Because I said so. And, but of course, when we're saying that, we're saying to the child, do you trust me? And not only do you trust me, but do you love me? And do you believe that I actually have the best things in mind for you? And I think when God is approaching Job, a list of endless questions, and those are natural and those are human, yes. But we are foolish to think that if God just kind of listed out a whole string of answers point by point, oh, this is why, and this is why, and this is why, would that ever answer anything? And would that ever meet the biggest hunger in his heart? No. God knows that the best answer to the wise is himself. And when God is calling Job to trust, he knows that the way to get Job to trust is not to solve all his intellectual questions, but for Job to encounter again, very personally, who is this God? A God who's mighty, a God who's good. And I think this is absolutely intensely practical for anybody who's going through difficulties when people ask the questions of the problem of evil in this world and are in the middle of personal suffering and it is so difficult and I'm not going to make light of any of these things at all those questions they are always there but the most comforting thing is not that anyone gives specific answers to those why questions the most comforting thing is to know that God is trustworthy and that he's good, and that he has not abandoned us. Because that's the most amazing thing to, you, to me also about the Job story. There's no reason that God had to show up to Job. And he's not an impressive person, especially at this point. Right? He's on a dust heap. He's sitting in dust and ashes and, and rags with boils all over his skin. He's a nobody. Why should, Job, I mean, why should God show up to him? Except he does. Because God doesn't abandon people. And when he comes, he wants even the lowliest and the bro most broken to trust him and to know that God is there. And I love this as uh, the... as we think about uh, the Christian faith in general because this trust that we see that God is trying to teach Job. It's a very personal trust, in other words. Because God shows up very personally to Job at the end. Because this trust in God as a person is really at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, this kind of trust in a very personal response with God, a very personal interaction, it kind of opens up the New Testament when God starts to reveal himself even more specifically and even more personally, more concretely to humanity because what does God do and you know the story perhaps of the New Testament is that God comes as a human being very personally into a world that is full of 
brokenness and hurt. And when Jesus shows up as God himself, he comes and meets all sorts of people. And again, he encounters all sorts of questions, right? From people, you know, why Jesus do you hang out with sinners? Or why Jesus can you say that you forgive sins? Or you know, how can you calm that crazy storm? Or why Jesus do you heal on the Sabbath? Why feed all these hungry people? Like, let them go home and find some food. Like, why do you wash my feet? Why, you know, why shouldn't I just fall asleep in the garden when you want to pray? I mean, there's so many why questions that start to pop up when Jesus shows up. But again, all those questions ultimately are answered not by some answer. <laughs> They're answered in the person, Jesus. And we find that that person is a better answer, a more satisfying reason than anything. Because we see that his character, right? we see his holiness, we see his love, we see his wisdom, his power and his mercy, and his beauty. And he shows up for us. And that's our God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are amazed at you. And I pray that as we encounter you through your word, you know, whatever kind of storm we might be in, uh, maybe whatever pain that has caused us to maybe somehow have a gnawing doubt in our mind about your goodness or your care for us, how trustworthy you might be. Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray that you meet us very personally now. That we know indeed that you have not abandoned us and that you indeed are the God Almighty who is sovereign over all things and yet are still and uncompromisingly good to us. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you that you've shown us that so clearly by meeting us personally in Jesus. Lord, we thank you and pray in his name. Amen. Amen.